There comes a time when your views and belief take away from somebody else's right to life, liberty, or the pursuit of happiness, and that is when it becomes not okay. Good morning, and welcome to the fall season of The Special Report. We have all new shows every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 9 a.m. PST. Thanks to all of our viewers from coast to coast who are joining us this morning. It's that time when I ask you to start a viewing party or to share the page with your online friends. On Saturday, thousands of Trump supporters, including members of far-right hate groups such as the Proud Boys, the Boogaloo Boys, and the Oath Keepers, participated in what was dubbed the Million MAGA March in Washington, D.C. Now, the crowd size didn't come close to a million, but Trump loyalists from all over the country descended on Washington to protest the recent election of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as president and vice president of the United States and to continue their resistance to the fair and legal election of November 3rd. In media interviews, protesters expressed hatred and anger towards the election process, Joe Biden, Democrats in general, mainstream media, progressives, and just about any and everybody that isn't named Donald Trump. Participation of white supremacist groups in Saturday's DC rally is more evidence that hate and bigotry are bigger than ever. And according to US security experts, white supremacy is the biggest security threat facing the nation. Today, we are asking why is white supremacy on the rise? How should Joe Biden confront the scourge of hatred that Donald Trump helped stoke? And what motivates members of the nation's oldest and most recognizable hate group, the Ku Klux Klan? Got a big show planned for you, so let's get at it. After serving in Afghanistan, Christopher Buckley joined the Ku Klux Klan because he said he was addicted to hate. Christopher remained a member of one of the United States' most notorious hate groups until his wife staged an intervention. He is now an anti-hate activist with Parents for Peace. Joining me this morning is former member of the Georgia White Knights of Ku Klux Klan, Christopher Buckley. Good morning, Hello. Chris. Howdy. Thank How you are so you? Much. Thanks so much for joining me this morning. I read about your story and was really moved by it uh, as a the story, I guess it was an opinion piece that you wrote on CNN.com. And yes. I guess the first question that came to my mind was, was why did you write that opinion piece telling your story of being a former member of the Ku Klux Klan? Uh, I, I felt a strong, you know, desire to, to kind of help build a little understanding um, behind the, the motivations of, of a lot of these groups. Um, I, while I can't speak for every extremist group, I can only speak on my drug of choice, which was the KKK. Uh, I suffered from PTSD, addiction. Um, I, I was radicalized throughout the course of my life. And it wasn't just like an overnight thing that happened. Uh, it took years of, you know, grievance and, and traumas and, you know, just a lot of things that kind of 
ended up leading me into a situation that, that was not promising or favorable. And I, I, I wanted to, to get my, my perspective out there because I believe that we can help people and we can bring on change in these people if we can understand the process that they go through to get there, if, if that makes any sense. No, it, it makes a lot of sense, Chris. And I want to step back because you talked about being radicalized. You talked about years of trauma. I want to go back to the beginning. You talked about in this uh, opinion piece, and I've read other pieces uh, about you, that you were traumatized or, or bullied as a kid growing up in Cleveland, Ohio. Tell us about that. So during my childhood, um, I, was, I lived on the west side of Cleveland, Ohio, which was predominantly white and Hispanic. And the east side of Cleveland, Ohio was predominantly black and what I'll say is other, uh, which was your Oriental and, you know, immigrants from like other countries, uh, Indian, Arab and, and things of that nature. Um, and, and they kind of, I don't know why they were segregated like that. It's just the way things happen. And um, so during the mid nineties, uh, they started the busing integration reform where they were trying to take kids from the West side and send them to the East side and vice versa as an attempt to integrate the school systems, which I'm all for. I think that it's like a kid will play with anybody until they're told not to. Um, so growing up, my parents were what I like to refer to as like closet racists um, in public. They were very, respectful and you know proper with with people but but at home it was a lot of racial slurs and epithesis I, I don't even know if that's a word but you know I'm just trying to you know use my language here and they they kind of were very open with it behind the confines of our of our four walls so I mean I grow up hearing this all the time and I was really conflicted for a second Chris I have a question for you in terms of, of the racial slurs uh, and the, the racism that you witnessed in your home, was it directed towards any particular group at that time by your parents? Uh, it was just anybody who wasn't white. I mean, like everything was the problem. My dad was an alcoholic and the reason he couldn't find work wasn't because he wouldn't stay sober long enough to go to work. It was because the Mexicans were stealing his job. Uh, it was because uh, you know, he didn't bring enough, bring home enough money, not because he didn't have a high school education or a trade degree. It was because he worked garbage jobs because nobody wanted to hire an alcoholic who was unreliable, but because of him, it, it, to his opinion, it was because he was supporting the blacks on welfare and, and, and government income. And, and so like every single situation that we went through, that was hard or, or, you know, a conflict to our happiness was like that had an equally uh, opposite response and, and justification for why it wasn't his fault. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, so when we started the busing thing, uh, my best friend at the time was a Lebanese uh, refugee. His dad came from Lebanon during, during their conflict and uh, his name was Edward Sarukin. And best friend, I spent 90% of my time with him. And um, it, it got to the point where my parents didn't want us together anymore. So we'll, we'll jump in. Like, that was just a whole lot of, like, you know, directed racism, like, towards him, towards them. 
Um, and this was Chris, just this growing up listening to your parents, you know, blame your dad, blame everything on what you said, blacks and Mexicans. Did you start believing it at some point? Did you believe what your dad was saying versus what you are now saying you understood to be his alcoholism was the real issue. But as a kid, most kids believe what their parents tell them. So were you believing what your dad was saying? I wouldn't say that I was believing it, but I had no reason not to. I mean, I was a child. So like what my parents tell me is it, it's the truth. It's, it's what's really happening. And so I get my, I remember my grandmother, she worked, she lived on a fixed income and she pretty much raised me because mom had to work all the time. Seeing how she was the only one that was sober. Um, and you know, during my childhood, I, I was what I like to use the term of aggressively molested uh, by a very close family member of the same sex. So it was only natural to me to hate anything that had to do with homosexuality, like because it, it directly harmed me. And, and I looked at every single person who was, you know, homosexual or, or same sex couples like they're the ones that hurt me. And, and that was my outlet. But so my grandmother say I'd never had a new pair of shoes in my life. Like so she saved up for like three months before school started and bought me the 90, 90 something Air Jordan Jumpmans. First new pair of shoes I ever had. And I remember the day I got off the bus on the east side of Cleveland, I was bust 181 blocks to a, a middle school over there. And I had one like two streets behind my house. Um, and I remember I, like six guys, uh, six kids who were in older grades uh, jumped me. They, they took those shoes. Uh, I was urinated on, spit on, and I was made to walk home from school that day. Like I wasn't even allowed in the school. And I remember I skipped 181 days that year. Um, like I, I failed the school year. Um, and that was kind of like the confirmation bias that I needed, you know, that, that, that everybody is going to attack me because of the color of my skin. So I, I kind of started to hold the racist views between like middle school and high school. And then my dad moved us to Southern Ohio uh, which was kind of predominantly white. Like you didn't see anybody outside of the normal South of like Chillicothe, Ohio. And I went to high school there. I was pretty well accepted. I was able to play with the, 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 the preppy and popular kids. I was able to hang out with the not so popular and socially awkward kids. And I really didn't have any enemies. So that was kind of uneventful. There wasn't no real confirmation bias that happened during that time period. So you went to the, I want to take you now to the military. So you actually went into the military. You served in Afghanistan. Yeah. And what was your experience like as it relates to your, you know, your development of these racist thoughts? It did, were they furthered while you were serving in the military? Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and just say this, but if I just disappear off the face of the earth tomorrow, you guys know what's up. All right. So I get to the military day one, the, the, the rhetoric that we're hearing in 2001 when, when I joined was Haji, um, you know, jihadi and, and things of that nature. So and I understand the, the necessity of that. Every war that we've ever had, we've vilified and dehumanized our enemy. In World War II, we called them Krauts and, and the Japs and, you know, Korea, they were gooks and zipperheads and, and things of that nature. And that's just a lingo. That's the beginning phases of, of desensitization and radicalization. Um, I remember I never, I mean, other than being on the rifle range and shooting at the pop-up green targets that would pop up at different intervals, 
I never shot at a, at a target that was anything other than a traditional Muslim or, or you know, Islamic male of military age or a female, and they were never peaceful. They were always, they had an RPG or, or they had an AK-47. So the visual and mental stimulation that, that these are the enemy was ingrained into every aspect of my life. I remember right before I went to Afghanistan, we spent like five or six months in Fort McCoy, Wisconsin, training up, getting battle ready, as we call it, and checking all the boxes and making sure that we were, you know, prepared to go into combat. And when I come home, uh, well, while I was overseas, I experienced some, some pretty significant combat-related traumas. Um, I lost a very close friend of mine um, in a very traumatic situation. I was right there. Um, I just, I, I, I began to hate, Islam and, and the things that it represented. And I was in no shortage of people who shared that view and opinion. Uh, this, Chris, I hear you saying that it was in the military where you started to hate Muslims and Islam. Did you continue while you were in the military hating, uh, you know, Latinos and, and African-Americans? I assume you were serving alongside them. How did you feel about, you know, minorities that were in the military with you? I, for me, like I said, I hadn't joined a group yet. I hadn't joined an organization because I was a soldier and my obligations and loyalties were to the military. Uh, so like, it wasn't really about blacks or Latinos or, or, you know, other races or religions as much as it was that I just hated Islam because of my narrow lens of what it represented to me. Um, it well, wasn't until forward now, Chris, are you returning from the military? You don't return to Cleveland. It's some, you return to Georgia? No, I returned to uh, Southern Ohio where I had, you know, bought some property in, in, in a, a place. And, um, you know, I, I come back and I, I, I was just home for a week and I went out on a state active duty mission and wrecked a Humvee. Uh, the back axle broke on a convoy and I flipped it once end over end and seven barrel rolls down the highway, breaking my back. And that was my introduction to opiate painkillers, which started my, my drug addiction. And sorry to hear about your, your injury. And, and so your drug addiction, uh, do you think that played a part? And again, your, your addiction to what you call addiction to hate? Absolutely. Uh, it, it lowered my moral standards. It, uh, it, it took away my ability to reason what was right and wrong. Uh, and, and in no way am I justifying it at all. I'm just, at the time, I would have justified it being appropriate. But now I'm just trying to help give a sense of like how it affects the brain and the brain's ability to, to manage these issues. So, so let's move now, Chris, to the point at which you join the Georgia Knights uh, of the Ku Klux Klan. What was going on in your life that, that made you make that decision to join, you know, one of the most notorious hate groups in this country? Oh, so, I mean, there was just a lot unresolved grievances and traumas that, that I never dealt with, uh, coupled with the, the PTSD, uh, the drug use. And then at the time, I remember when I got out, it was right around the time where, you know, people were starting to really take a stand towards like Confederate images and statues and and how they represented certain periods in history that that shouldn't be glorified um and and i come home one evening 
And my wife's sister was, she was with a, a, a black drug dealer. And, you know, it just, I was, I was so mad about that. Not the fact that he was black, but the fact that he was a drug dealer first. And, and I don't remember, like, I was really high on, on painkillers and methamphetamines. And I just got online and I was like feverishly, you know, going through forums and chat groups. And, and somebody was like, you sound like the kind of person who, who needs an outlet, who needs to talk. And they, they justified the way I was feeling. So like, I began a conversation. They recruited you online. You you were inside one of these chat groups online, and that's where you got recruited into the Ku Klux Klan. Well, that's that's where I met my contact, my groomer, so to speak. Um, so I remember they they invited me to a cookout with them and their family, and and like they were extremely anti-Islamic. They they loved the fact that I was in the military, and and granted, at this time I just ETS from the military. So like there was that emptiness of camaraderie and, and togetherness. I didn't have the, I felt empty. I felt like I didn't have a purpose anymore. And, and like, they really are skilled at the fact of how they, they groom you and, and, and kind of mold you into being susceptible to say, okay, I want in. And well, um, Chris, I hear what you're saying about being susceptible and being vulnerable, but at some point you join the Ku Klux Klan. Is that correct? Yeah. And you actually were a leader in this, this Ku Klux Klan. And when we think of the Ku Klux Klan, the images that we've seen, the cross burning, uh, the, the men wearing the white hoods, you know, burning buildings, is that a true representation of what the group is that you joined? Is that uh, what you're doing? So, I mean, like the cross burnings and stuff, yeah. Um, the, the burning buildings, not so much. Uh, after, after the legislation was passed, about like not wearing face coverings in public and, and things of that nature. They called them clan laws. And uh, so they, they kind of, they mellowed out a little bit and they started using other groups that were more susceptible and prone to the violent aspect of it rather than the, the demonstration and the, the protest aspect of it. Um, they, groups like the, the, the neo-Nazis and the, uh, white nationalists who were, you know, a very uh, way, way more violent than we were. But yeah, it's it's pretty accurate representation, uh, all in all. I want to bring Jane Elliott into this conversation. She's a, a renowned anti-racist activist. She's an educator whose uh, blue eyes, brown eyes exercise gained national uh, attention for what it revealed about racism. She's also the author of A Collar in My Pocket, The Blue Eyes, Brown Eyes Exercise. Uh, Jane is a Returning guest to the show. Good morning, Jane. Good morning. Jane, you've been listening to Chris uh, talk about his experiences of being radicalized, talking about being addicted to drugs, being vulnerable. Uh, what do you make of Chris's story? And is his story similar to the stories of so many of the men that we see uh, join these hate groups? Yeah, it's similar in many, many ways. Number one, his conditioning didn't start when he joined the Klan, and it didn't start when he got beaten up when, by a bunch of black kids when he get, went to an integrated school. His conditioning started at birth, when his mother was treated differently in the hospital, in the delivery room, than black, black and brown mothers were. It started when his father was making racist remarks, and those were perfectly acceptable in his home. He was conditioned to racism from pre-birth, and he will, be con he will remain conditioned a bit to racism as long as he lives, unless, as it seems to me, he has decided to give it up. Giving up racism is trying, kind of like giving up drug addiction or alcoholism. 
First, you have to admit that you got it. Then you have to admit that you didn't ask for it. You weren't born that way. It was put forced upon you by your society, by your family, by your friends, by your school, by your education system. In this country, we don't educate, we indoctrinate. He was indoctrinated with the myth of the superiority of white people, and he was indoctrinated with the myth that there was such a thing as white people. There are no white people. We are simply people who don't have much melanin in our skin, and instead of being called white, we ought to be called melanemic. And those who have more melanin in their skin should be called melanaceous, because white and black are not skin colors. They are, one is the, the color, white is the color of innocence and beauty and saintliness, per perfection. Black is the color of savagery and evil. When you name groups of people, white and black, you set them up to be constantly at war with one another. We have created, created a chasm between people of no color and people of lots of color, and there are no people of no color. Even white people have melanin in their skin. That's a fact, so let's get over that. Somebody needed to have told him and his mother and his father and his teachers that there's only one race on the face of the earth and white and black are not race, they are color groups. We've got to get over this. His life would be better if someone would take him and sit down and say, here's, here's the way it is. You didn't cause this problem. You didn't ask for this problem. You were, you, were brought, you were brought into this problem and this problem has been forced on you long enough. You've got the intelligence and the experience to say, I'm, I'm mad as hell and I'm not gonna take it anymore. Go feed your trash to somebody else. I'm going to live a sane, reasonable, responsible life. Well, well, Chris, at some point you did make a decision to disavow the, the racist hate group that you were a part of. But I want to go back a minute. Jane talked about being indoctrinated and you definitely told us what was going on in your household. But at some point, Chris, while you were a member of the, of the Ku Klux Klan, you were indoctrinating your own son with your racist views. Is that correct? Absolutely correct. Uh, it's a perpetual cycle of violence. And right. Right. I was taught and indoctrinated. I indoctrinated my son. And I, I just, I got to the point to where I realized that I did not want my son to inherit my hate. Uh, and, and that's right around the same time that my wife reached out to uh, former Arno Michaelis. Uh, he was a white nationalist and and she just sent him an email, like, how do I get my husband out of a hate group? And, you know, she never really thought that she would hear back from him. But uh, Arno took this very personally. And, you know, he made a trip all the way from Milwaukee and we began working together. And, you know, eventually once Arno was able to help me get clean and stay clean off of off of drugs and to start challenging the ideology that I had. I kind of took it and ran with it. Like a sober mind is a blessing. No, absolutely, Chris. I'm glad to see that you were able to get off drugs. I want to ask you though, what was that aha moment for you? What, what was that moment when you said, like Jane said, you were going to reject the you know hatred and the garbage really that had been fed to you? Wow. Um, it's the moment I watched my son in his little mini clan robe, throw up a white power salute. And, and I just, uh, I got nauseous while everybody else was cheering and, and, and excited. I got physically ill and we left the rally that day and uh, I never went back. Chris, never... well, how many, you, you, so you and your son are at a clan rally. Your son has on a mini clan robe. How many kids are, are typically at these rallies? Everybody's. Like every parent brings their children to it. And that's how they 
continue the 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 longevity and the leadership amongst these groups. Um, it's it's a disease. It's a cancer in society, and you know, it's it's an addiction. It's a it's an addiction to hate and extremism and and you know, there's a good the, the good news is is that, that that we have a solution for it. So. Jane, so Chris is one of the lucky ones, lucky in the sense that his wife reached out to someone that was willing to come and to, you know, do an intervention with him, address his drug addiction issue, address his hate addiction issue. But what about the, the thousands that we're seeing now invisible in, in the media that won't have the opportunity that Chris had, you know, don't have a supportive wife, don't have a family member that's going to reach out and, you know, do the kind of intervention that, that Chris was the benefit of. What, what happens to those that are, are raising their kids the way Chris was raising his son to, to carry on that kind of hate? They are in the street right now marching in support of Donald Trump. That's what happens with those people. If you would go into those rallies that are being held in Washington, D.C. and all over the country in support of Donald Trump, what you would find is the kind of anger, the kind of insecurity, the kind of lack of intelligence, the kind of lack of, of knowledge, the kind of lack of real education in every one of those people. Those people are primarily what we call white, but they're really melanesic because they don't, melanemic because they don't have enough melanin in their skin to give their skin its color, any color. But they are all what we, most of them are what we call white and they are marching in support of a monster. And this is a 40%, almost 40% of the population of the United States voted for a monster in the last election. They are doing exactly what Klan members are doing. They have had four years of being conditioned to the myth of white superiority and the myth of the superiority of Christians and the myth of superiority of males. And they are not listening because they are, right now, right now they are hearing something that makes them feel good about themselves and it makes them feel powerful. And they can wave those Trump flags and they can wave that American flag and they can wave all those other symbols of the, of the ignorance of this society in which Chris, this gentleman says, we separated on accident. We didn't separate on accident. We have laws in this country that force segregation. Everybody needs to read the book of law. And this man particularly needs to read that because he thinks that segregation is because people don't want to be together. He's wrong about that. There's only one race on the face of the earth, but the people who wrote the laws segregating communities in this country were, were conditioned to the same myth that Chris was, to the myth of three or four different races and the superiority of one race. We've got to re-educate the lawyers, re-educate the police departments. Don't throw them out. Don't stop funding them. Re-educate members of the police department so that when those people are protesting, against the viciousness of racism, leave them alone. But when they're protesting in support of a person who supports racism, sexism, ageism, homophobia, ethnocentrism, when they're marching in support of that, we have to have people out there to say to them, this isn't legal and you're gonna have to back off because if somebody doesn't put a stop to this, this country is going to lose its democracy. Right now we're in a war for the souls of the, America, the United States of American citizens. And Chris, I want to ask, I know you have to go, we have to let you go, but Chris, I want to ask you, what, what message would you give to the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Boogaloo Boys, these hate groups that are, are a part of that march that Jane mentioned, the Saturday march on Washington to the march in Washington, D.C. to protest this election? What would you say to those members uh, who are now where you were some years ago? I will say that there comes a time when 
your views and belief systems take away from somebody else's right to life, liberty, or the pursuit of happiness. And that is when it becomes not okay. So when you look at your organization or your drug of choice, then you have to, you have to decide whether or not that is acceptable when you take away from other people's rights. Uh, secondly, um, you know, as Miss Jane was talking about re-educating, not defunding, I love that because I, with my partner group, Parents for Peace, uh, we're a nonprofit national organization. We have a helpline. Um, it's up on the screen there. And our helpline gets tons and tons of calls. And I've been working along with them on a program for the last two years, actually two programs. Uh, one is called Hate Anonymous. And I got to thinking that can I be addicted to hate the same way I was addicted to narcotics? And I found striking similarities. And I wondered that if that's so, can I treat it with a moral cognizance approach the same way as I did with my addictions? And the answer is absolutely yes. We are in the final, uh, uh, you know, building phase and, and you know, dry runs and, and development phase. Uh, but then I got to thinking like, you know, my time in the military and the persecution of our law enforcement who's out there trying to uphold and, and you know, keep the rule of law and order of law and they're being villainized. And we don't understand as the average person, what kind of traumas that those, those first responders and law enforcement have to face on the daily. Well, um, I, I want to correct you, Chris, because the law enforcement is, is not being villainized. And so we, we want to be clear about the language that we're using, that there may be some pockets of people who uh, have attacked the police, but that pales in comparison to what we've seen the police do to peaceful protesters the tear gas and the violence that's been uh, used against once uh, once again i will i will i will clear that up very very straightforward and say that those police officers who are attacking people do not re represent the entire body of police officers in general so just because i don't like one specific homosexual it did not give me the reason to attack every homosexual and when we look at our confirmation bias then we have to sit back and say, okay, so there might be small pockets of police officers who don't have the moral and, 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 you know, constitute inside to do the right thing. We can't villainize all officers and, and saying that all police are bad, that the police need to do this. They do need to reeducate and retrain. And we come up with a program designed specifically for that called trauma non. It helps to reduce confirmation bias and, uh, uh, political judgment, racial judgment, sexual and, and religious judgment in, amongst our, our first responders and military. So while we, we have a lot of problems, uh, Parents for Peace and, and myself, we've been working feverishly for the last two years and we really, we have a viable solution. It just needs funding. And, and people that are out there right now watching saying, well, how do we help? Well, you can help by funding either money time, uh, you know, just effort, you know, there's, there's a lot of different ways to fund a project. It doesn't have to be monetarily, but it, it, it takes money to make programs work. So. Well, I want to thank you so much, uh, Chris, for having the courage to tell your story. Uh, and, uh, you know, congratulations on the work that you're doing with uh, Peace for uh, Parents for Peace. I wish you the best of luck. Uh, I, I hope that your organization can have an impact on helping change the hearts and minds of the thousands of, of men 
uh, and women that we saw, you know, marching on some of those hate groups that we saw on Saturday, who continue to resist uh, the fair and lawful election that, and that continue to uh, traumatize communities across this country with their hate and their violence. So again, thank you, Chris, so much for sharing your story. Very welcome. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining me for this episode of A Special Report. Please take a moment to share, subscribe, and rate this podcast. I always want to hear your thoughts. You can share your comments with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn by following at Ariva Martin. Thanks and be safe out there.